As my mother baked Aaron's birthday cake in a kitchen filled with food from the market, the bright blossoms of its vendor vendor awnings wilted under clouds of smoke. Police brandished sticks and guns. Entire rows of stalls had already been abandoned. Old women ran with baskets in their arms. Chickens and dogs screamed. Later, one vendor my father knew swore he had stepped on the loose eye of a fish and felt it searing between his toes. The rioting and rampaging by the police lasted for days. After the first hectic hours as the news spread, Thummel people stayed indoors. No, my mother said firmly when my brothers looked at the windows. Four people were yanked from their houses and slain for no reason and news of Dara's deaths leapt fences to our ears. From my bed I could hear my father pacing in his study. Grimly, my mother served us birthday cake. Welcome to the South Asia Review of Books podcast from Himal South Asian, where we speak to celebrated authors and emerging literary voices from across South Asia. Today is Tuesday, the 20th of February. I'm your host, Shweta Srikantan, assistant editor at Himal South Asian, coming to you from Colombo. And here with us today is Vivi Ganesha Nandan to talk about the books that define her latest novel, Brotherless Night, and women's writing on Sri Lanka's long history of anti-Tamil violence. Vivi Ganesha Nandan, also known as Sugi, is the author of the novels Brotherless Night, a New York Times editor's choice, and Love Marriage, which was longlisted for the Women's Prize and named one of the best books of the year by the Washington Post. She also teaches in the MFA program at the University of Minnesota, where she is an associate professor of English and co-hosts the fiction nonfiction podcast on Literary Hub, looking at the intersection of literature and the news. Brotherless Night, published in 2023, contends with the Sri Lankan civil war's end by returning to its beginning through the voice of Shashi, a young Tamil woman growing up in the northern city of Jaffna. As violence unfolds around Shashi, her four brothers and their friends, they navigate the complexities and contradictions of seeking political liberation while confronting the cruelty of the Sri Lankan government, Indian peacekeepers, and Tamil militant groups. As the book's title lets on, There were huge costs to this war absorbed by young men in Sri Lanka's north and east, but there's also immense loss experienced by women, mothers, students, civilians, and activists. Part of the success of Brotherless Night is that it's not only an essential contribution to writings on Sri Lanka's civil war, but it humanizes the lived experiences of Tamil women and the ways in which they've been affected by anti-Tamil violence. Through Brotherless Night, Sugi poses urgent questions on whose stories are told and who gets to tell the stories and histories of conflict in Sri Lanka, which we'll explore further in today's conversation. Sugi, welcome to the South Asia Review of Books podcast, and thank you for being our very first guest on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. I had the pleasure of listening to you speak at the Salon Literary Festival in Colombo a few weeks ago, and one of the topics discussed was diasporic writing. When it comes to writings on the conflict in Sri Lanka, there are constant debates on authenticity and who gets to tell the stories. And this is a topic you reflect on in a 2010 piece for Himal and a recent article for LitHub. To quote a line from the LitHub piece, you write that, To deny diasporas their voices is, in some regard, to practice the politics that drove them to do that in the first place. So I wanted to ask how this shaped your approach to writing Brotherless Night. Thanks for the question. I think that, of course, this is very often a topic in 
particularly in contemporary writing. For example, there's the hashtag own voices, etc. Kind of the notion of lived experience, which is a phrase that, I don't know, perhaps 30 years ago was not as frequently used. And I think the question that interested me was where that line of own actually began and ended if it was so clearly definable. And it seemed to me that it it really wasn't. And that was part of why it was interesting to me, because I was curious about the extent to which it was possible for me to learn the material that I needed to learn to write the book. And in all other regards, if one applies oneself to learn a certain set of material, one wouldn't start from the presumption that it is impossible um, or unapproachable. And from the other end of things, I've never particularly liked the idea that my identity is unapproachable, impenetrable. So I don't know that perfection is possible, but it didn't seem to me like that was a reason not to try. And it also seemed to me like there would be ways, of course, to do it ethically. So I did the best I could on that front, which basically meant going as far as I possibly could in terms of research, but also just in the sheer act of imagining what it would be like to live there during that time period. And I did, in the course of my research, have the fortune to speak to many people, including women, specifically a lot of Tamil women who had lived through that time period, who had endured, say, displacement or violence that affected their families. And those people were often, I mean, they were more than equipped to tell me what it was like, and they were willing to do it. They wanted that story to be told, the ones that the people that I spoke to. So, um, I mean, I even remember having a conversation with one person where I was sort of like, oh, I no, I wish I could write this in Thummel. And my Thummel is, is not good enough for me to do that. And the person said, oh my God, please write it in English. And, you know, I think it's, it's an imperfect project because, and it, it, and it's a, it's an incomplete story because I think that that's true of most things. But in general, I like to try to do things as opposed to just, just kind of lay off. And, um, that I suppose is also a characteristic inherited from some Tamil women in my family who are extraordinarily stubborn and wonderful people. Thank you for that, Sugi. And taking what you've just said about who gets to tell these stories, I also wanted to talk about the subversive works of fiction and nonfiction mentioned throughout Brotherless Night. There's Emergency 58, the story of the Salon race riots, and Ponin Selvam, a Tamil language historical fiction novel that are passed around between Selvi and her brothers. And there's also Maxim Gorky's Mother and Kumari Jayawardena's Feminism and Nationalism in the Third World, which are discussed as a part of the Women's Study Circle at Shashi University. So could you tell us uh, about some of the books you read as part of your research and also why you've selected some of these titles in particular to highlight in the book? So in an earlier version of the book, Sashi and her brothers read the things I would have read at that age. And I don't think I was thinking with the correct depth of engagement about what the reading would mean to them to their minds at those particular moments. And then I was fortunate to have someone reading a draft who had lived through that time period who kind of called me up and was like, so, you know, <laughs> definitely not. Um, these people would not be reading these books. These are the books you would have been reading. And I was like, oh, no, that's that seems so obviously true that I, now I must go and repair all of this. So I guess I would describe this as sort of like I went through the book and yanked the virtual books off of its shelf 
and reshelved them and started again and was sort of like, well, what would you be reading? And this person had given me certain titles. um, And I knew that Emergency 58 was a, is a book that I own, actually. I own a copy of it that I must have bought. I think I bought it on eBay or something like 20, 25 years ago. And I remember feeling really surprised that it was possible to buy. And um, and I've toted it around as like a, one of, I mean, it's one of probably one of the rarer books that I own. And I found it to be really illuminating in how, I mean, it's a, like, it's, it's a viscerally horrifying, really difficult to read book. And people in my family had talked about the 58 riots, but had never, like I'd had no sense of the scope and the vitriol and the violence that attended them. And so to have the larger context was really influential for me. And it struck me that, of course, right, I was beginning my story at a particular moment, but this family has a longer history. And there are allusions to the the longer history in various places in the book, right? Even early on, Sashi says that she wants to be a doctor like her grandfather. And her grandfather, it turns out, was kind of subversive himself, was someone who is providing reproductive health care to women in Colombo, which I knew from speaking to people was a thing that had happened, right? So there were sort of allusions to, and then there's an, an allusion to an, uh, a member of the family in the previous generation who went to, who went missing at a certain time. So of course, the history of reading also, have, also has to have been longer. So Sashi's father actually has a copy of Emergency 58 on his shelf, and the brothers kind of go to read it and steal it from each other before they're done, or, you know, some some are kind of una- like not totally able to finish it. Um, Sashi herself finds it a book that is, it scares her, and she's not sure that she even really needs to pick it up to to have a sense of how bad this might have been. Going on into the book, let's see, there were, well, feminism and nationalism in the third world. I think Emergency 58 and feminism and nationalism in the third world are probably, yeah, two of the books that it seems to me like, sort of to my surprise, some people who have picked up Brotherless Night have actually gone and read these two books. I was reading a little reader note from someone who had, you know, read Brotherless Night, gotten to the mention of Emergency 58, gone and read it. A, a huge chunk of it is on the internet, right? Gone and read it and then come back. And I was like, oh my God, I had no idea people were going to do that. And then I think also feminism and nationalism in the third world, right, was like, I had friends who were at university and in reading groups during this time period who had been reading that book and who had discussed it. So it seemed like it was appropriate to make it part of the conversation. And I was really interested in it in the way that it kind of, um, right, Gandhi, especially in, in his, the simplest Western depictions of Gandhi, he is merely a saint. And he's not someone with whom one is necessarily permitted to argue or encouraged to argue. You're supposed to think of him as, thank goodness this person came and saved saved India from the West. And of course, like on some level, that is true. And also, he was just a man. And that meant that sometimes he was wrong. And so Kumari Jayawardena, of course, points this out in really interesting ways and dismantles some of the myths of Sri Lankan feminism that are still quite popular, like the notion of, you know, oh, like, what a proud achievement that Sri Lanka had the first woman prime minister. Um, And, right, what does that really mean without the attendant progress in the lives of ordinary women? If, If the elite are able to achieve some office 
but then it doesn't bring real progress, right? And these are also all questions of of audience. Who am I writing the book for? I mean, and really, I was writing it for Sri Lankans. So those were debates I was interested in having. As for the others, I mean, some of those had also been mentioned by friends who had read the books. I'd sort of asked, you know, um, what were you reading at that time? And so Russians were mentioned. Um, I understood that Russian literature was frequently translated. And for a book about women, for people to be reading Mother uh, made sense. And so I was kind of imagining people, you know, I don't know, going to Pupala Singham Book Depot or wherever and picking up their copies and for them to have really lively discussions and life of the mind, for them to be thinkers seemed like it would be true. So it was a pleasure to learn about the literature of that time period. Some of those books, probably most of those books I have, they are... I think in their time and now, not uncontroversial volumes. So I think that hopefully adds to adds to the interest and also the just the way in which we understand Sashi and her brothers to be having conversations with each other and with their friends. Thank you, Sugi. And I am one of those people who went looking for a copy of Emergency 58 after reading Brotherless Night as well. <laughs> Did you? Yeah, just looking for a physical copy. But yeah, there are bits of the book online, available online. So yeah, before we welcome you to read an excerpt from Brotherless Night, I'd like to take a moment to invite our listeners to check out our website, himalmag.com, for in-depth independent coverage, including some of the most wide-ranging book reviews from the region that rely on the support of our listeners like you. South Asia Review of Books is a podcast and a monthly newsletter that threads together our latest reviews and literary essays, with reading lists and all things books related from Himal's extensive archive. You'll find a special reading list curated by Vivi Ganeshanandan in this month's edition, so do sign up for Himal's newsletters to keep up with our latest stories, podcasts, special events, and more. And now, Sugi, over to you to read an excerpt from Brotherless Night. I will read from a little bit into Brotherless Night, where... The family, uh, Sashi, is the fourth of five children, um, and she has these four brothers. And down the road, uh, their friend Kay, who is kind of friends with all of them and is about their age. And so all of her brothers and her father and Kay have gone to a political rally. And this is kind of the stretch where violence has already occurred at that rally, and the brothers are looking to see how they can kind of get out of it, get out of there. And Niranjan, the oldest brother, has gone back into the building to retrieve Kay, who has briefly gone missing. I'll go back in and find Kay, Niranjan said, but if I am not back in 10 minutes, and if this spot becomes overrun with people, you leave. I will come. Seelin started to protest again, but then stopped. My father nodded. Be careful, he said, his voice low. He held Niranjan's arm and then released him. I promise, Appa, Niranjan said. I'll come. Don't worry. My father nodded and Niranjan ran back towards the building. In the days after this, when Appa told me and Amma about those minutes of Niranjan disappearing and returning, first with Dialin and Seelin, and then again with Aaron, and then leaving again to get Kay, his mouth trembled and he had to stop several times, because he was shaking too much to talk. When he regained himself, he said, 
what to do, what to do. As a boy, in a time of earlier communal trouble, my father had lived through his own brother disappearing. In his study, there was a garlanded picture of my uncle, who was neither the first nor the last boy to be lost this way. I should have gone myself, Appa said. Nobody would have thought I was a militant. They are young men. I am old compared to these boys with their guns. I should never have let Naranjan go back into that building. We were not safe, Appa meant. He could not protect us. But I did not need him to tell me. I already knew. Everyone was going in the other direction, Naranjan told me later. I was trying to swim against a tide. He found his way back into the building. The dark made it harder to see people's faces. Some people held torches, but mostly the remaining few faces were dimly lit. The policemen were questioning witnesses. Across the room, Naranjan saw Kay talking to someone. Later, Dylan would tell Naranjan that this was Kay's tutor, a man who had previously been beaten for trying to protect Kay from the police. But at the time, he seemed to be merely a stranger. He was tall and stocky and had thick, dark eyebrows and thick-framed spectacles. What were they still doing here? Kay wore his most serious, listening face. Look at me, Naranjan said to himself very softly. And miraculously, Kay did. Then his expression turned guilty as though he had been caught at something. But what? Naranjan had no time to wonder about this. Kay said goodbye to the man and cut across the room to Naranjan swiftly, like a ship with the wind at its back. I'm sorry, he said to Naranjan. Let's go. Who is that? Naranjan asked. Your father will be waiting, Kay said. But Kay glanced back at the other man, whose Jaffna eyes were trained on them. Because two policemen died at that rally, the police at large went on a rampage. They were angry, the government said later, unrolling its infinite list of excuses and apologies. Surely and understandably, this was true. With two men slain and two more wounded, the remaining police went to take their revenge and their pleasure. The knife of their anger pointed at Jaffna Town, where they lit up Thummel shops, houses, and other institutions. Community centers ignited and bewildered shop owners fled roadside cuddies, not knowing why their lives were being torched, but realizing that the police were too many to resist. When it took Naranjan too long to return, my father ushered his three remaining sons away from town, as he had promised he would seeing the line of flame that would hunt them if they were not fast enough. Come, he said, and they obeyed reluctantly, all three trained by younger brother habit and duty to wait for Naranjan's word. The stories that the government chose to tell about such violent nights described them as though they were not deliberate, like no one was choosing, but in fact every target had been chosen as carefully as a flower in the best bouquet. The TULF office, which the remarkable, unremarkable speech-giving politician called his headquarters, the ancestral home of a young member of parliament who also belonged to the party, the office of a Tamil newspaper, a Hindu temple, the Jaffna market where I had done errands for my mother since my childhood. I was not there, and for that I did my penance imagining it. I had company in the dreaming, too. All of us left behind spent the days that followed reconstructing the events obsessively until we felt so certain of some details it was as though we had lived them. Eventually, the six men of our lane, now two parties, found buses back to our village. 
Out the windows, they could see a parade of people and animals commingled in their respective businesses. My father's bus passed three dour working elephants in their chains, four men beating a boy, and a swarm of policemen, Singley's men carrying sticks. Thialin looked away. The boy being beaten was about his age. Through the open windows, he could hear the vicious, biting sound of flesh stinging flesh. Underneath that, there was the chaotic and uncanny noise of a place emptying of one set of people and filling with another. Those who could manage it had fled the roads overrun by the so-called authorities bringing so-called order, while others pressed on in the other direction, Jaffna proper. In that direction, beyond the six of them coming home to my mother and me and Aaron's forgotten birthday dinner, the dark scent of burnt wood clogged the air at Jaffna Market. I loved the market and often chose to help my mother by going there. I could have drawn a map of it as it stood before it burned. I knew where to find everything. The tidy packets of fragrant curry leaves, the sinuous heaps of yellow-green snake gourds, burnished eggplants, long green beans and hot chilies, toasted cashews, the ground pockmarked with the remnants of beetle leaf, the beetle itself, the king coconuts halved and ready with spoons carved from their shells, the neat rows of uncracked eggs, the dark canisters of gingerly and coconut oil, the bloody halal meats, the barrels of brown rice, red rice, white rice, lentils, curry powder, and flour, the men yelling, vare, 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 as they hawked snacks, the beggar who collected coins and scraps of food by a well in a filched metal cup. As my mother baked Aaron's birthday cake in a kitchen filled with food from the market, the bright blossoms of its vendor awnings wilted under clouds of smoke. Police brandished sticks and guns. Entire rows of stalls had already been abandoned. Old women ran with baskets in their arms. Chickens and dogs screamed. Later, one vendor my father knew swore he had stepped on the loose eye of a fish and felt it searing between his toes. Blackened Jaffna mangoes and jackfruit lay scattered in the dirt, encrusted with the rime of carbon, the air choking with their sweetness, and another sweetness, the unknowably worse stench of the scorched animals. The rioting and rampaging by the police lasted for days. After the first hectic hours as the news spread, Thummel people stayed indoors. No, my mother said firmly when my brothers looked at the windows. Four people were yanked from their houses and slain for no reason, and news of Dara's deaths leapt fences to our ears. From my bed, I could hear my father pacing in his study. Grimly, my mother served us birthday cake. When we tried to sing to Aaron, my youngest brother, all too soon, he held his hand up for us to stop. The Singhalese policemen burned our library last. Mercifully, we did not see it. We did not see the white walls blacken and fall into each other like so many dominoes. When Kay snuck out of his house and down the road to tell us what he had heard, from whom and how we were too stunned to ask, Thialin went into his room and shut the door and did not come out for many hours. I sat in our courtyard staring up into its cup of sunlight. They had torched the elegant palace of white rooms where Selin and Kay and I had studied. Its clean and well-lit shelves, the rare book section with the beautifully lettered palm-leaf manuscripts. Thialin had shown some to me when he had first begun working there. 90,000 volumes gone, some of them original and single copies. Our past, but also 
Oh, the beautiful wooden tables where I had turned the pages of my textbooks and my brother's textbooks. The future. And it was gone. Imagine the places you grew up, the places you studied, places that belong to your people, burned. But I should stop pretending that I know you. Perhaps you do not have to imagine. Perhaps your library, too, went up in smoke. I'll stop there. Thank you so much for that, Sugi. That passage to me, it really captures so much of the kind of tragedy and cost of the war. And it gives this kind of window into what we talked about earlier on the importance of reading our histories and not forgetting what happened, right? Um, Which leads me to my next question. So one of the interesting stylistic elements in Brotherless Night is Shashi's occasional switch to the second person narrative. And there's this refusal to simplify what happens in this war and she presents to the reader these moral fault lines that people were faced with. And in showing these complexities through the voice of a woman also makes a powerful statement in the book. So can you say a bit about how you explore the terms by which we understand conflict and the language of terrorism in this book? I started writing this book in 2004. So in some ways, my grappling with the language of terrorism has the residue of 9-11 behind it. I think that's probably obvious to people. What may be less obvious, especially to people who are not of Sri Lankan origin, are the ways in which people of Sri Lankan origin, and particularly perhaps those in the diaspora, reckoned with the language of terrorism before 9-11. I was familiar with those terms and words before that because they were words that were applied to us. Um, They were like the bad jokes that people made. Um, Sometimes they still are the bad jokes that people make. And it seems to me like the language of the war on terror is the language of bad storytelling. It's terminology and vocabulary that's designed to eliminate nuance, to make it so that you don't have to talk to other people, so that they're they're made unreasonable. They're rendered, they're rendered objects rather than people capable of saying anything that might matter. And so it's a very effective way to end a conversation, actually. And I found that it was also really persistent and pernicious that, that I mean, people do still make that, that joke. Um, a surprising number of people who will sort of find out that I'm Sri Lankan Tamil and sort of immediately make like a tiger joke. I'm like, oh, hilarious. I find that hysterical. And I, I don't think that that's at all an uncommon experience, actually, in the diaspora to perhaps have been one of a couple of Sri Lankans in a room and had someone else make a glib comment, which is, of course, infuriating. And I also felt that one way to demand that people enter the story rather than even exactly inviting them, maybe the first page is a little bit somewhere between a demand and an invitation or a dare, maybe even kind of, you think you know the terms of this story. um, So I'm going to use your words, and then I'm going to show you all of the ways that they're wrong. And Sashi, I think, also inherits, by virtue of my experience publishing my first book, a little bit of my frustration as someone who is frequently called upon to do things like gloss the war in 30 seconds or provide an explanation of a certain political actor or a certain kind of history. And I'm expected to be prepared to do that. And Sri Lankan history, as you surely know, is so dense. And I'm sure, I mean, your listeners must know so much more about so many aspects of it than I do. So what does it mean to put someone like me on the spot to do that? But then on the other hand, if I don't do it, 
maybe I'm standing in a room where no one else is going to. So there's a certain pragmatism at work also. So Sashi is a little bit having that argument with herself, having that argument with an unseen audience. Um, she's angry at their assumptions. And then sometimes she thinks about who is she assuming is in the audience, because then she's also, you know, is she also making the mistake of thinking she's telling the story to a room with no other Sri Lankans in it, and maybe they're actually there. Or maybe people who have other experiences that might bring them to understand the story in a different way, people from other places with histories of ethnic conflict, other burned libraries. Um, I think we don't have to look too far to see those at this particular moment in particular, like looking at Gaza, where people are feeling such tremendous grief and horror over what is happening to civilians. Um, and also at the destruction of infrastructure, civil institutions, like long histories, museums, libraries, personal and public libraries. Um, so I think like to for her also to enlarge her view and think about people with whom she has things in common, who she might have forgotten were there. And to kind of call herself on that a little bit is also part of that narrative strategy. But she does she does directly speak to the audience at various points, which she which she always did from the book's very earliest drafts. Thank you, Sugi. And speaking of the early drafts of the book, so Brotherless Night took nearly two decades to complete as you kind of meticulously unravel these characters and the events of the war. Um, I came across the 2013 version of the story you wrote for a literary magazine called Plowshare, titled K Becomes K. And it's kind of amazing to see how the story has changed from then to now. We jump from the prologue to K's hunger strike, which occurs later in the book. And there's this devastating scene where Shashi is performing the cleansing ritual for K after his death. But in the book, they don't let her come inside because... She was an unmarried woman. So I thought that speaks to the kind of cultural restrictions imposed on women in Tamil society. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that and also any other major changes that were made to the story and why? Sure. There were so many major changes that I'll have to try to maybe focus on just a few. Fascinatingly, you are maybe the only person who has asked me this question about the story and plowshares. So um, I appreciate that. There is another section of the book that also appeared as a short story in Granta, um, which involves a suicide bombing. And that section also changed slightly, but maybe not as much as this one. So I think I wrote K Becomes K very not, it wasn't the early, like it actually was one of the earlier things I wrote. And then I sort of had been sharpening my knife on that particular section for a while. And it just is this moment of intense obsession, which I think is actually reflected in the short story in a way that is in the book shaped more for pacing. Um, and I think also with an eye to the practical restriction to which you refer, there is a moment of in the short story where Sashi is um, left alone with his body. And the longer I worked on it, the more I thought like this is ac it was actually a moment that I felt um, was key to how I conceived the book and key to what I my own intensity of feeling about it. But it also was a moment that could not exactly be permitted to exist in the strict realism that I had demanded of much of the rest of the work. So and I tried to figure out kind of ways around it, like, could there be sort of like a daydream in which this happened? And I was like, no, there can't actually. And my editor and I had a funny back and forth about it. And I ran it by a couple of other people, a good friend, like another writer, 
of an Indian American writer actually had also read this in draft and sort of said, I love that they look at the body and they look at the body and they look well past what anyone reasonable would do. She's like, it's the obsessiveness that I like. So I tried to keep the intensity of her focus while also, yeah, kind of making the necessary shift for, yeah, both realism and pacing that I think the completed novel required. But I think I had to write the version that appears in Plowshares for my own sense of what the relationship between Sashi and Kay actually is. And I think that um, that particular moment got trimmed uh, in a certain way. But later on, actually extremely late in the writing of the book, there was some conversation where some people were sort of like, we'd really like to see another moment between Sashi and Kay, which led me to write a scene that is maybe one of my favorite scenes in the book, which happens quite late, and which does involve them having a certain conversation that felt like it matched that same emotional register, but also actually allowed Kay to speak. Um, I guess I won't say too much more about that scene, because you probably know which one I'm referring to. And your listeners, if they haven't read the book, can go and find out. Yeah, thank you. I would like to take a guess on what that scene is. Is it when Shashi's walking to the meeting of the university and Kay shows up? Yes. That's the one. Yeah. That's, that's the one. my favorite scene too. <laughs> it is absolutely the last scene that was written. Oh, really? It was, was basically it? the last scene in the entire book that was written. Oh, that's amazing. Because that to me was the most kind of devastating scene, right? Yeah, it was beautiful. Thank you. So yeah, thank you, Sugi. So speaking of women in Tamil society, that brings me to my last question and also a main question for this episode. So in Brotherless Night, the experiences of Tamil women take center stage. With the protagonist Shashi, the book features a cast of other strong female characters, including the Mother's Front, um, Shashi's friend Hasna, who is a young Muslim woman from Colombo the pregnant suicide bomber, and of course, Professor Anjali, um, some of whom are based on real people um, who've also written on the conflict themselves. So could you tell us about some notable works by women writing on Sri Lanka's long history of anti-Tamil violence? Sure. I think there are such a variety of books, and I should caveat this list by noting that, again, my own, the level at which I can read Thummel is not adequate to allow me the full range of experiences in this regard. So that's that's something that I continue to study and work on. But I must start, of course, with the nonfiction book that is really the book to which Brotherless Night is an homage, which is The Broken Palmyra, collectively authored by UTHRJ, um, and with a section um, specifically authored by Rajani Theranagama, uh, called No More Tears Sister, which um, I would put in this category. And she is, of course, the the basis for the character um, Anjali Premachandran in the book. Uh, my friend Rohini Mohan wrote the remarkable, remarkable book Seasons of Trouble, um, which, of course, uh, I don't know, like... I, it doesn't seem to me like any, I don't know how many reviewers caught this, but of course, like, right, it's prechene column, right, in Tamil, it's, um, it's a translation of a Tamil phrase. So um, Rohini is also a person who wrote, like, she just did incredible reporting. And I, I love that book. And I think that she's such an extraordinary journalist. And she told stories that were really hard to tell. And she told them with such care. I really admire that work. Sharika Theranagama uh, wrote In My Mother's House, Civil War in Sri Lanka, which addresses um, uh, northern Tamil communities and also Muslim communities. So that book I hugely, hugely admire. And I think it gave me a sense of sometimes in the diaspora, we draw the lines of community quite tightly. And uh, Sharika in that book demands that we 
draw them maybe the way that they actually are with more porousness um, and complexity. So I think she really sets a tremendous standard for scholarship. Thamalini wrote a memoir, and that has been translated into English now. I actually tried to read it in Thamal. My Thamal is way below that level, but my Thamal is good enough that I could tell within about a paragraph. I was like, oh my gosh, Thamalini, who was, of course, a commander in the Tigers and who passed away of cancer, Thamalini was a really good writer. Thamalini was a great writer. And that was really interesting. So it is now it's available in both Tamil and English. So I'll recommend that to folks. Um, and then the other writers, I want to mention Sumathi Sivamohan, who is a playwright, a poet, filmmaker, who has made a number of extraordinary films connected to the war and also who has written, um, who has written about it with uh, just really tremendous power and with a refusal again of the kind of tidiness that bothers me. So she really will not, she will not do it uh, neatly, uh, if no matter what other people would prefer. And I'm very grateful to have had access to that work as well. And then the last three people I want to mention, I'm kind of cheating here, are reporters, Namini Vijayadasa, Mira Srinivasan, and um, Jeevan Ravindran. So Mira writes for the Hindu, Namini writes for the Sunday Times, and Jeevan, I recently came across her byline and she is a freelancer who has written about some things connected to the war. So I'm going to toss them in there too, even though that's not exactly the question you asked. No worries at all. Thank you for that excellent list. And thank you also for an excellent discussion and for taking the time to speak with us today. It was an absolute pleasure to have you on as our first guest on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me in for your terrific questions. Thank you for listening to the South Asia Review of Books podcast from Himal South Asian. This episode was edited by Ritika Chauhan. If you like this episode, please share widely, rate, review, subscribe, and download the show on your favorite podcast apps. You can find Vivi Ganeshanandan's reading list for the episode in this month's South Asia Review of Books newsletter. You can find the links to subscribe, listen to previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews on our website at himalmag.com. Thanks again, and see you next time.